Hi, welcome to this Bible study. We are going to be going through Exodus chapter 19 in this study today. Um, Israel has arrived at Mount Sinai. This is um, the culmination since Exodus 3 that we're going to talk about when God gives Moses the the command, the task, the challenge of going and being his mouthpiece, his voice in Egypt. But one of the signs that we're going to talk about that God gives to Moses is that after you have led the people out of Egypt, you are going to return here to this mountain to worship me. And that's what we see happen today. This is the start of the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses. It's also called the Law. Uh, it's also called the um, Covenant at Sinai or the Sinaitic Covenant. Um, we'll be talking about that a lot more in detail next week in Exodus 20 when we uh, dive into the Ten Commandments. Uh, but today we camp out on Exodus 19 and the fact that Israel is to be God's chosen people, a royal priesthood set apart. We'll talk about all of that. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you that we are able to, 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 to do this. Thank you for the means to do this. I pray that you will speak through me, that these will be your words, that you will soften my heart, my ears, and that you will teach me something about who you are, but also the people that are listening and uh, watching, Lord, that we would be receptive to what you have to say to us, what you have said in your word, and what is uh, still true to this day. We dedicate this time to you. Pray thus in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's dig into this. So we are going to uh, break this up into three chunks. The first one's only two verses long. The second one is verse 3 through 8, and then the third chunk is the whole rest of Exodus 19. So I'm reading from an NIV. Um, if you don't have an NIV, you can either follow along, but if it's distracting, just sit back and, and listen and enjoy. <clears throat> Exodus 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Okay, I want to pause right there because there's a lot of stuff that, that we just need to hit on. The first and foremost, the most significant thing here is actually what happened at um, in Exodus 3. So flip with me back uh, just a little bit, um, back to Exodus 3. This is where Moses uh, goes up the mountain and speaks to God, uh, God speaks to him through a burning bush. So... Uh, let's back it up and go to verse 11. So we're going to do Exodus 3, starting on verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So context, if you haven't been following along with us, um, Moses is born in Egypt. He's raised in Pharaoh's house as a prince of Egypt. And at some point, uh, either on his 40th birthday or before he turns 40, he finds out the truth that he was actually born a Hebrew and that his mom, um, well, I don't know all the details that he knows, but what we know from reading Exodus 1 and 2 is, is that Pharaoh had set a decree to kill all of the boys, all of the baby boys that are born, to throw them into the Nile. And Moses' mother puts him in a basket 
and floats him down the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and raises him in his household. But then, uh, at some point, we don't know exactly how old he is, we know at 40 he leaves Egypt, but what happens is he has a, a, a realization that he is a Hebrew, and he chooses, rather than choosing to be in the uh, in Pharaoh's household, he chooses to embrace his Hebrew heritage and culture uh, and nationality. And you have to realize and keep in mind that the Hebrews were slaves. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. They were um, under whip, and they did all the building of Egypt. They were enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So Moses goes to defend a Hebrew that is being um, attacked by an Egyptian guard, and he ends up killing the Egyptian guard. Pharaoh finds out about it and seeks to kill him, and Moses flees. Moses flees across the desert and goes to Midian, where he meets Jethro, who we spoke about last week. Uh, He marries Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, and then is a um, shepherd in Midian for 40 years. But at the end of that, God calls to him, and that's where Exodus 3 comes in and says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of captivity, out of Egypt, and through you, I'm going to do amazing wonders. And Moses' response here is, uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He ran for his life because he was wanted for murder. That's where we get into verse 12. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that is uh, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. We are seeing now in Exodus 19 the fulfillment of that promise that God makes. It's powerful. Um, I can't imagine how terrified Moses was He's probably in complete doubt, which we see in his conversation with God. He says, no, you've got the wrong guy. Uh, but imagine that journey that he takes when he heads back to Egypt um, as a, a wanted criminal going back to the place that he fleed, not knowing anybody, um, not having any friends, not having anything. He's been gone there for from 40 years. And it had to be terrifying. And to, to have God say to you that you're going to lead the entire enslaved nation of Israel, which is over two million people. You're going to lead them all across the desert back to here. But imagine Moses's, uh, imagine what went through his mind and his heart and, and what it would have been like to be back at that exact same spot where the burning, burning bush was, where God first called him into service. It's a great victory. It's a great success. It's an awesome uh, triumph for Moses, and I don't want to pass over it um, too quickly. Uh, so that's the, the main point there. The other thing to say is, is that they are actually going to stay. Israel is going to be camped out in front of Mount Sinai for the next 11 months. It's in Deuteronomy 10.11 is the next time, excuse me, not Deuteronomy, Numbers. Numbers 10.11 is when Israel is going to leave Sinai uh, some 11 months later where they're heading for the promised land. And then, uh, as if you know the story, um, Moses is going to send the 12 uh, into the promised land to scope it out for 40 days, come back and to give a great report saying, yes, we can do it, God is with us, and 10 say, no, we can't, 
there are giants in the land, we can't do it. And so the nation of Israel doubts, and as a result, God punishes them for their lack of faith. He says, okay, because you didn't believe, um, now you're going to wander around the desert for 40 years. Okay, that was a long tangent and lots of uh, background context, but um, I just wanted to make sure we realize what's happening and where we're at right now, and a humongous significant point that has been hit. So now let's uh, continue reading on. Uh, we're going to do verse 3 through 8. Then Moses went to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. Verse 8, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. First thing I want to hit on is you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. God has given this command to give to Moses, this statement to give to Moses, this covenant, this um, agreement to give to the people. And the first thing he says is he reminds them of what they saw in Egypt. He's reminding them of the 10 plagues that God brought down on Pharaoh because of his stubborn heart and to show his might, his power, and his glory of who God is. He's reminding them, you saw this. You saw what happened. You know who I am. I am that God who did all those things. Remember those things. Um, the other element that I want to say is, is that uh, I carried you on eagle's wings. Eagle's wings is a picture that is often used in the Bible. Um, I'm going to throw up uh, seven verses. I'll go through the first three. Um, and the last four you can go through on your own. But Isaiah 40, 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Luke 13, 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers your chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Both are awesome pictures of um, an eagle and, and just awesome imagery. Isaiah 40, 31, to soar on wings like eagles. But then Luke 13, 34, um, this idea of a, a mother hen. It's not an eagle, but it's a, a, a hen, but it's the same idea of wings wrapping up the wings uh, around her chick. And the third one I want to hit on, I actually want to flip to it, is Deuteronomy. So join me, leave a marker here, and join me to go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, we'll pick it up on verse 9. This is in the Song of Moses. It's right at the very end of um, Moses' uh, recap of Deuteronomy, and it's his final words 
um, that he gives to Israel. Verse 9, For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and hollow waste. He shielded him and carried for, cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. He refers to Israel as Jacob here. So when he says in a desert land he found him, he's talking about the people of Israel. As you recall, in Genesis, Jacob has his name changed to Israel, and Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So the picture here is vivid, and it's it's painted well. God wants uh, to paint that picture for Israel to remember that he brought them to himself, uh, that he carried them on eagles' wings, that he is their redeemer, their rescuer, their protector, but he's also the mighty God who brought down his wonders on Egypt. Verse 5, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, I just want to stop right there. If is a very important small little word that you can pass by very quickly. This is the beginning of the Mosaic covenant, of the law, and it's establishing here that it is a conditional covenant. If this, then that. If you do this, I will do this. If you do this, you will be this to me. If you don't do this, there will be consequences. The other type of covenant is an unconditional covenant. In Genesis chapter 12 is where we start the Abrahamic covenant, where God says, I will uh, bless you, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. But through you, all the people of the earth will be blessed. That covenant is um, sealed in Genesis 15 at the cutting of covenant process. The tradition was is that you would take an animal uh, and you would cut it in half and you'd put the two halves on either side and then you would walk through with whoever you were making this agreement. Um, today we don't do this. You know, we have attorneys that make these agreements and there's consequences according to breaking them. But in that day, you would cut an animal and, and you and the person you're making an agreement with would walk through together. And the idea is simply, may you be like this cut animal in half if you break this agreement that we are making here today. Well, God in Genesis 15 puts Moses, excuse me, Abraham to sleep. And then God himself walks through between with the lamp, with the lantern. Go back to Genesis 15 and read it. It is very significant because it's showing that this is an everlasting covenant that God makes and promises on himself. At, uh, uh, Genesis 17 is the um, symbol of the covenant, is the outward sign of that. That's the covenant of circumcision. And then that covenant gets passed on from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob. It is the everlasting covenant that still exists to this day, regardless of what Israel does, even though even to this day, Israel as a nation is predominantly atheist. Uh, Israel is still protected, is still a, um, 
is blessed and those that bless Israel are blessed and those that cursed Israel curse Israel are cursed, which is one of the main reasons why evangelicals support Israel so much is because the Bible tells us to. And we're going to talk about that more. I'm going on on way too many tangents. We have a lot to cover. We need to keep going on. Um, but this is the beginning of the Mosaic Law. If this, then that. And we'll talk about that in great detail uh, next week as we start into the Ten Commandments. Um, of all the nations, this is an interesting element. So uh, verse 5, um, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So I want to actually lump all three of these things together. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and holy nation. All of these tie around being set apart. Let's do a quick word study on treasured possession. Sagola is the Hebrew word, and it means possession, valued property, treasure, peculiar treasure. If you've got a King James Version, it says that you will be a peculiar treasure. Deuteronomy 14.2, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Psalm 135, verse 4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. The whole earth, although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me, my treasured possession, the kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. I like that God adds this in, although the whole earth is mine, what does Israel do that wins God's favor? Why does God choose Israel as his chosen people? What, why are they better? No, no, God is God. He can do whatever he wants. And he chose Israel as his people. They did nothing to deserve it. They did nothing to earn it. It is simply God's choice to set them aside as his valued treasure. Uh, looking at that word again, possession, valued property, treasure, peculiar treasure, the visual that comes to my mind, and I don't know if this works or not, but it is honestly what came to my mind, is thinking of my nieces and nephews when they were toddlers. Any parent can relate to this. A, a little, you know, two-year-old has their favorite blanket, their favorite stuffed animal that for many kids, they can't go to bed unless they have that. There's no logic behind why they chose it. And in fact, they love it so much that they ruin it. Now, that's not applicable. And it's also not applicable simply because um, in this analogy, a toddler will eventually abandon that favorite toy for the next new toy. And God's covenant and promise to Israel is everlasting. They are forever his chosen people. Now, we as the church are grafted into that branch and we have the inheritance that Israel does. We have not replaced Israel. Um, that theory is called um, replacement theology or supersessionism. And this idea that the church has replaced Israel and that God's promises for Israel are now held true to the church today. And that's simply not true. That's not biblically supported. Okay. Um, the whole earth is his and he chooses Israel to be his kingdom of priests. Now, this is an interesting element. Kingdom of priests. The Levitical priesthood has not been established yet. That's in Exodus uh, 28 and 29. We're going to hit that in, in 10 weeks, depending on how long it takes us to get there. It'll probably take us longer because we'll camp out on the Ten Commandments. But that's not until Exodus 28 and 29 is the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. 
But this does tell us simply that in the context of that day, they understood, the original audience, the Israelites, understood what this meant, that they understood what a priest was, even though the Levitical priesthood hadn't been established. So the idea of the priest is uh, someone who's set apart and dedicated to God. You'll be a nation that is set apart and dedicated to God. Um, 1 Peter 2.5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, that's actually talking about the church, not talking about um, Israel as a nation. Uh, and we'll read more of 1 Peter chapter 2 in a bit. But I want to lump it together with a holy nation. This word holy uh, is um, kadosh, which means set apart or sacred. And we're going to come back to a very similar word to that. Um, Deuteronomy 7.6, Deuteronomy 26.19, and Isaiah 62.12 are all verses that talk about Israel being set apart, being sacred. So out of the whole world... God has chosen Israel to be set apart, to be his holy people. The idea being that they are going to be a reflection of God's love and they are to be set apart. And by the world watching Israel, God will do his wonders and the world will see and will be brought to God through Israel. And that comes... That comes to fruition through Jesus, and we'll talk about that when I get to um, application. But again, the, the Abrahamic covenant, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth are blessed through Israel, and that's Jesus. We'll talk about that more when we get down there. Um, all the Lord has commanded, we will do. Verse 8, we will do everything the Lord has said. Now, in a few chapters. Um, so this is the beginning of the law, right? So Exodus 20, we start the Ten Commandments, then 21, 22, 23 are very specific things. If this, then that. If you're bull gore somebody, um, if you steal, if you do this, if you do this, then these things are happening. Um, it very clearly is laws, basically, outlining um, the rules, so to speak. But then at the end of that, in Exodus 24, Israel says, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And again, in 24-7, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And then in Deuteronomy 5:27, tell us whatever the Lord our God tells us, we will listen and obey. So we have four instances in which Israel says, yes, we agree, we will do this. We will do everything the Lord has, has told us to do. But those have, who have read the Bible before, studied Israel at all, we know they fail miserably. I mean, right after this, uh, shortly after this in, in chronological order, it's going to take us a while to get there, is the incident of the golden calf where Moses is going to be up on the mountain for 40 days. And when he comes back, the people have uh, made a golden calf to worship, which goes against uh, the second commandment and also the first commandment, which we'll talk about next week. But it's like, the, it's 40 days pass. I mean, not much time passes at all. And they made this agreement and they break it. And we're going to see as you study uh, from the, the whole rest of the Old Testament, as you study this, you see Israel fail miserably. 
God calls them through the judges, through the prophets, and says, return to me, return to me, be my people, be holy, be set apart. And in some instances, they do, they listen, and then great things happen, and then they backslide yet again. And as I've said before, and I'll always say, we are a picture of Israel. Picture, Israel is a picture of us. We are no different. Israel is the best of the best at this. We would have failed even faster than this. But it's just interesting that there's four different verses that all have Israel agreeing to this covenant. Now, here's a question for you. Is Israel saved by the law? Are the people, the Jews, in following the law, if they follow it to the T, will they be saved? Do they receive salvation through the law? And we're going to talk about that next week. No, they don't. And we're going to talk about that. Salvation comes through faith. And we'll talk about Abraham and that, that his faith, his belief he was counted under righteous because of that. We'll, we'll unpack all of that next week when we get into the Ten Commandments. Um, but it's just something to keep in mind as we continue on. So now we're going to read the rest of Exodus 19. We're going to pick it up on verse 9. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Exodus 19 on verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was, th there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the top of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. At the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. 
I don't know how it works. I don't know if um, once we get to heaven, we'll be able to go back and watch uh, past scenes, like pull up the video and watch or go and, and be there. I have a feeling that heaven is going to be so amazing. We'll have no desire uh, to even think or even worry about this world or what's left of it um, or what happened in it. But for me personally, this is one of the moments that I would love to uh, be able to have been a witness of. Um, to be able to have seen the uh, uh, Moses and God talking in the burning bush, awesome. To been able to witness from a distance the plagues down on Egypt, but then to be at the base of the mountain and see the smoke billowing, the fire, to feel uh, the trembling of the mountain. I mean, this is an epic scene that's happening here. And, and the people were terrified. And I can understand why. <laughs> when God says, if you do this, you'll be my treasured people. Why in the sight of, of all this that they're seeing, they're like, yeah, we'll do everything you say. As the mountain is covered in fire and smoke and it's trembling and they can literally hear God from within the cloud speaking to Moses. They've seen everything that happened in Egypt. Of course, they're going to agree. This is also one of the reasons I'm going on another tangent. I'll make it short. This is one of the reasons why uh, I believe God doesn't make himself known in this same way today because it's not, it doesn't cause belief. You see this and they agree, but they don't follow through. Belief, faith is confidence in something that you don't see. And so God doesn't come out and make himself known because then would you really honestly have a choice? Think about that for a second. If God appeared, just set his foot down on earth and suddenly said, I am God, I am that I am, and all will know me, everybody is going to hear that. Would they honestly have a choice at that point? Because they would see God for all he is. No, everybody would immediately be like, oh my gosh, he's God, they'd fall down. This is one of the reasons why I believe um, in the millennial kingdom, there's a thousand year reign. And then Satan's going to be loosed again to tempt people because in that time, Satan is, is locked up and they see Jesus. Jesus is ruling and reigning in, in Jerusalem, but people need to be given that choice. They need to be given the choice to choose God and follow him or not. Whole other tangent, but the point being is, is that this is an amazing scene that Israel is seeing firsthand of the smoke and fire and trembling mountain, and it's epic, absolutely epic. So God speaks from the dense cloud, that's verse 9. Um, we've had this reference many times before. Here are all the verses uh, that reference God appearing in a cloud. These are some of them. I think it's all of them, but I didn't do an exhaustive search, but so you have Exodus 13, 21 and 22, Exodus 14, 19 through 20 as well as verse 24, Exodus 16, verse 10, Exodus 24, uh, verse 15 through 18, and then Exodus 40, 34 through 38 at the end of Exodus. All of those are references to God being in the cloud. So we see yet again, God speaks from the dense cloud. Why? Why is it that God speaks from the dense cloud? He even says it so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will put their trust in you. 
As you recall, with the incident uh, where the water was bitter and they complained like crazy against Moses, God shows Moses the piece of wood. He throws it in and it, it tastes fine. They complain about food. They complain about water again. Um, God provides the food in the manna and the quail. And again, with water, Moses hits the rock as God commands him to and water comes out. And in each of those situations, every single one of those situations, Israel complained against Moses as opposed to simply seeking God. And they, they wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. They were fed up. And they said to him on multiple occasions, why did you bring us out here to die? Why did you bring us out here when, uh, to die of thirst or to die of hunger when we had uh, meat uh, back in, in Egypt and we had water back in Egypt? So the, the, God is setting Moses, uh, he's anointing him, he's setting him apart to be the spokesperson and to be ordained by God in their sight. And Moses is going to bring the Ten Commandments and he wants to make sure that the people listen and follow. So now verse 10, there's an interesting thing that is said. Verse 10, um, and the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them consecrate them. What does he mean? What does God mean by consecrate them? This is something that that Moses is commanded to do to the Israelites. Now we see that, that he tells them to have them wash their clothes. So this is one element. They're to wash their clothes. They're to prepare themselves. And down on verse 15, it says, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. So we understand by these elements that it is a, a time of perhaps holy reflection, meditation. Uh, the abstaining from sexual relations is to focus on God. Don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on your spouse. Focus on God. Um, this word consecrate, uh, my NIV has consecrate. Uh, the King James Version, you have sanctify. The New Living Translation has set them apart to be holy. If we do a word study of this word consecrate, it's kadash, which is the same base word that I used in the word study for holy nation. It's the same word uh, to consecrate, sanctify, prepare, dedicate, to be hallowed, be holy, be sanctified, be separate. It's used multiple times in Exodus, Exodus 19, as well as four times in Exodus 19 here, and then also in Exodus 20, verse 8. What's Exodus 20, verse 8? Well, this is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Kadash is the word that is used there, set apart for holy purpose. That's the point of this whole section. And so when God tells Moses to consecrate the people, he is to set them apart uh, to consecrate them, to sanctify, to prepare, to dedicate, to be hallowed, be holy, be sanctified, be separate. So they understood. So clearly in the context, go to the people and consecrate them. Moses understood what that meant. And the original audience clearly understood what that meant because there's no explanation given. So they would have known what that means. But what did he actually do to consecrate them. The only two things that we know is that it's a three-day uh, span of time. I guess it's three things we know. It's three days. Have them wash their clothes. Why do they need to wash their clothes? What's the significance of that? And uh, 
the only thing that I can think of is simply that it's the same idea as Moses being asked to take off his shoes as he approaches God at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Because the, the ground on which you are is holy, there's other element that they've been traveling for a long time. They're no doubt dirty. So clean yourselves up, prepare yourselves as best you can, set yourselves apart for you are God's chosen people. The, the, the whole point of this whole section is that Israel is to be set apart. That's the point of this whole entire section is that Israel as a people is to be set apart, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, God's chosen people. And when Moses is commanded to consecrate them, there's something with that that he does that signifies them being set apart. Now, one thing that when I first read Exodus 19, why does God place the limits around the mountain? He says it three times. There's three verses, uh, verse 12, verse 21, and verse 24, right? So we have uh, verse 10, have them, no, excuse me, uh, verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain. Uh, again, in verse 21, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Uh, verse 23, put limits around the mountain and set apart as holy. Verse 24, the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. And I think it's just my perspective as being a, a Christian today, we have the full scope and knowledge of the breadth of God's character as given throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see we got Jesus. I mean, he's so approachable. He's um, our friend. He, he, he cares. We, we learn through the New Testament that the Holy Spirit wants us to present every single um, care and, and concern to him, to pray about anything and everything. And God, who is our friend, who loves us dearly, is concerned for every single concern you have. He knows every hair on your head. He loves you abundantly. And yes, that is true. And God is the same in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But in the New Testament, there's a focus more so on that uh, forgiveness and kindness and that, that loving embrace that I'm looking forward to is seeing Jesus face to face. I can only imagine that that song that's done by Mercy Me is a phenomenal song of what that moment will be like when you see Jesus. What's that moment going to be like? I mean, it, 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 it really... I mean, it overwhelms me, right? But in the Old Testament, there's this element of God being the creator God that is meant to, to um, be revered and feared in a holy and respectful manner. And we see God bring his thunder and fire down on the mountain. And when you look at that, I believe that the reason why these restrictions are given, one, God clearly sets up that that if you come into my presence, you are going to die. You are going to be destroyed. You cannot come into my presence. And so he sets these limits. Um, but one of the things that I found really, really interesting is one theory that uh, uh, Peter uh, Inns, E-N-N-S is his name. He's the author of the NIV application commentary. One theory that he uh, postulated um, was this uh, tripartite theory and tripartite simply is a fancy word that means a three-part system, right? 
this very well could be a picture of the upcoming tabernacle and future temple. And, and what that means, what I mean by that is, is that um, the tabernacle is going to have three divisions to it. You have the outer court where the general people are able to be. Then you have the inner court, which is the holy place that only the priests are able to go. Then you have the most holy place, the holy of holies, which uh, eventually will also be set up in the temple. And when they celebrate Yom Kippur, the day of atonement is the one day in which the high priest and the high priest alone, uh, who was called to be a Levitical priest of the descendants of Levi, but specifically a descendant of Aaron, would go into the most holy of holies and would atone for the sins of the people. So the picture here that, that we have in this theory is the mountain, right? Moses alone is able to go up to the top of the mountain. But then we do receive at verse 24, we see the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. So Aaron is able to go to the very top. But then there's another verse. Um, we get it in Exodus 24.1. We see the access to the mountain again. Uh, but in this situation, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders are able to come to the mountain. So they have access to the mountain. They're not allowed to go up to the top of the mountain, but this select group is able to come to the mountain. And this very well could be pictured by the holy place, the inside of the tabernacle, the inner court of the temple. And then on the outside, the foot of the mountain, everyone else is the outer court. The people are able to gather in that area. Now, I got to correct myself. I said that this is a picture of the tabernacle or later on the temple, when in reality it's the other way around, is, is that God shows this division, the, the tripartite, uh, and it very well could be that this is one of the foundations behind the three parts that Israel puts into the tabernacle. We'll talk about that um, when we get to uh, the creation of the tabernacle. The point of this is all these things are pictures of things that are to come. Now, application that I want to talk about is this element of being set apart. That is a point that is clearly being made over and over and over again throughout Exodus 19, is, is that God wants Israel to be his chosen people set apart. And the application as we see that today is that God still wants his church, his people to be a holy nation and to be set apart. Uh, I want to read a few different things. There's uh, three things that I want to read. The first one is from Peter Enns. Uh, that is from the application commentary. I just want to read what he writes here because um, it's well-written. Christ himself is the fulfillment of God's intention for Israel. He is God's son, as was Israel in Exodus 4, 22 through 23. He, Jesus, is also the fulfillment of Exodus 19, 5 through 6. That is, Christ is God's treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, and his holy nation in the sense that through him, the universal call to the nations is finally and fully put into effect. Christ is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's Luke 2, 32, uh, which is borrowing language from Isaiah 49, 6, as well as 42, 6 and 51, 4. 
he, Jesus, fulfills this role for the very reason Israel did not. He is perfectly obedient to God. We'll, we'll talk about Jesus being the fulfillment of the law next week when we talk about um, the law itself and why it was given, and we'll talk about that more. But So there's two verses that I want to flip, flip, flip to in the New Testament. The first one's in Matthew. So flip to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 verse 13. These are Jesus' words at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt is added to food to add spice and flavor. That's what Christians are to do. We are to be the flavor. We're to be... Uh, set apart and known. We're to be a light on top of a hill that is seen for others to see. There's supposed to be something different about your life that stands out from non-believers. And now let's flip to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, picking it up on verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are to be set apart Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the patterns of this world. So gut check, friends at work, friends in your bowling league or softball, softball or indoor soccer or Mahjong club or, you know, what, whatever. People that are not in your circle of Christian friends, do they know that you're a Christian? How do they know? What do you do in your actions that sets you apart? Or do you find, like myself, that you fall short of that? There are times at which I realize afterwards that I have said something that I shouldn't have said, that I reacted in a way I shouldn't have reacted, and as a Christ follower, I know better than this, and I should do this, and I should be this, this, and this, and this. One of the best ways 
that you can reflect your Christian values is to admit immediately when you make a mistake, admit when you tell a lie, when you lie to somebody, even if it's just a little exaggeration that you say to uh, make your story sound better, or if someone says, uh, hey, did you send me that thing? Oh yeah, I sent it. Do you don't have it yet? Let me, let me see. It must've gotten lost. If you realize that you did that, that you lied, go to that person and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I lied to you. Uh, I didn't do that. I was supposed to do it and I forgot and I'm sorry and I lied and I'm, I apologize for that. I'm sorry. Nobody does that. Be that person that stands out that at the workplace, there's something different about you. And for me personally, as I said, the best way that I can do that is just simply admitting when I'm wrong and asking for forgiveness, calling myself out. And people will see that. They'll recognize that. There are many ways that you can, you can be set apart. And, and I don't know, take that or leave it. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you chose Israel to be set apart, to be your people and the works that you did through them the law that we're going to talk about next week that you gave it to them and that it is a a message for us even to this day it is your law it is your guidelines for us to live by and we'll talk about that next week but thank you for that thank you also lord that that through israel you brought your son and you brought salvation to the world through him Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that the church today is grafted in to these promises that, that we today are the bride of Christ and that we are yours. I am so grateful that you have claimed us as yours and that you love us as much as you do. I pray, Lord, for myself that I would have a healthy and reverent respect for you as the God who showed himself to Moses and to the people of Israel at Sinai, in the thunder and the fire and the smoke and the trembling of the mountain. Let me see you in that light, as well as the light of being our, our loving father and friend. I love you. We love you. And we're so grateful that you, you want us to read your word and that you work in our hearts. Continue to work in our hearts and change us, Lord. Proud this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we start the Ten Commandments. Uh, every, the, the Ten Commandments are all encompassed in Exodus 20. Uh, I'm going to break it up. I'm not going to go through every single uh, commandment next week. There's no way. Um, but I'll break it up, and we'll see how many we get through. So I love you guys, and I'll see you uh, next week. <laughs>